0: This episode is brought to you by so Rare. Stay tuned for more information on them later in the episode. Let's go. What's up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of Wall Street's podcast, where twice a week I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics, basically anyone with a good story to tell. Now, institutions are clearly becoming increasingly interested in digital assets, but there are some institutions that have been trailblazers in the space for years. Arguably, none have been beating the drum harder for crypto than Fidelity, a behemoth in investment management with over $4 trillion in assets under management. Wow. Today's guest, Urien Timmer, is the director of global macro at Fidelity. I've preached often that the path to generational wealth is patient and informed investing. Well, Urien's a master at curating these strategies and a proponent for including cryptocurrencies and investor portfolios. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have you.
1: It's great to be here, Scott.
0: So now to get into today's episode, can you talk a bit about how Fidelity first began exploring crypto?
1: yeah so we started uh, i'm not ex- sure exactly sure what year but it was at least five six years ago um and you know i think that the, the general thinking was you know nobody really knew what it was going to be um at that point but uh, but we knew that as you know one of the world's largest financial institutions obviously if it was going to be a thing we needed to be to be there um, and um, and so you know we we, we started getting involved uh, I mean we even mine our own Bitcoin uh, very very sustainably I might add using hydropower um, but so we were really a very early mover certainly from uh, from the lens of a traditional financial company as opposed to you know um, a bunch of coders uh, out there trying to, try, to get involved so uh, we I, I don't know if we were the first as you know Uh, in terms of large institutional players but we've got to we we should have been one of the first i think
0: not not shadowy super coders i guess (laughs) exactly Uh, uh, but that that speaks i think to the certainly the ethos of fidelity as a company because everybody heard about it five or six years ago but very few decided to do anything and were utterly dismissive, to be quite honest. I don't think they even foresaw that it could become a thing, much less that they would actually put resources behind the chance that it might become a thing. So what is, what is that about Fidelity that, that as a company you would be interested in even exploring a new asset class?
1: I think it's just the way that the industry and Fidelity has evolved. I mean, when I started there in 1995, a uh, mm-hmm. very, very long time ago. And at, at that point, you know, the mid nineties, uh, it was, you know, the, uh, the holy grail of active management. And it, you know, we were really just a, a mutual fund investment organization uh, building a lot of skill. I mean, we already had a lot of skill, um, but, you know, as that industry matured and as it became more powerful. Passive with ETFs kind of taking over the the landscape, um, and, and and as Fidelity created even more scale as as a just a general. Uh, financial services organization beyond just managing money but also uh you know taking care of people's money even if it wasn't at fidelity you know, we have i think we have 11 trillion under administration and i think we have something like 38 million customers right so that the scale is pretty is pretty off the charts but you're you know the 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 operating structure evolves so we became really more of a technology company in a way i mean we're still obviously a mutual We still have, as you said, you know, 4.3 trillion under direct management, but the needs change and and it's all about scale and technology and making the experience easier uh, for people. And, and I think, you know, blockchain was recognized as being potentially a disruptor nobody knew if it was going to be a disruptor but you know uh, i mean we weren't really talking about DeFi back then of course uh, but but it's but it the the potential was there to be uh, a te- technological disruptor and we tend to get there early uh, when when we see something moving
0: right and if crypto becomes that big most companies of your size will probably be the blockbuster and not the netflix Right, And I I think it takes some vision to appreciate that that's even a a possibility. So you mentioned, obviously, uh, Fidelity's early interest in ETFs as well and and becoming a large player in that industry. The Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin Futures ETF, whichever it may be or not be, uh, has been the talk of the crypto town certainly for quite a while here. And it was reported that Fidelity was in private meetings with regulators trying to push for an ETF. So why do you think an ETF is important? And do you think that it's likely? Uh,
1: yes, yeah, so I was not in any meeting, so I just wanted to put that to make that clear. Um, but. You know it's uh, an etf uh, whether it's us or someone else and 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 you know depending on what, what what the bones are whether it's futures or some kind of storage um you know and fidelity already has a product for non for accredited investors um uh, you know I, I mean it's likely to happen i i think i don't know if we'll be the first or or when it will happen it may take longer than than uh, maybe most people think just because because obviously, we know what's happening on on the regulatory front or what's not happening on the regulatory front, but (laughs) that all all eyes are are on the industry. Um, And I think it's, you know, I would imagine that uh, as the industry becomes more mainstream, you know, um, there will be more regulation and and we generally see that uh, actually as a good thing, because it will basically legitimize the space. And I think, you know, I, I, if I, when I talk to institutions, for instance, you know, corporate treasurers or uh, pension funds CIOs, I think, you know, there's always a list of things that people worry about. One was sort of the ESG angle, which I think has largely subsided now that China has banned mining. But one is is, is obviously regulatory risk, volatility is the other one. Um, and I think, you know, if if the space does get regulated, obviously in a constructive way, um, I think it will actually help legitimize uh, the industry, and and will facilitate the, the institutional adoption. Like the retail adoption would, you know, we would require some some vehicles like an ETF, for instance. But institutions don't generally um, need that. So, um, so there's still a bunch of things between here and there, and whether it takes six months or a year or two years, you know, I don't know, and I don't think anyone else really does either.
0: You said quite a few things, and the one that just stuck immediately into my mind was that you're having conversations with pensions about Bitcoin and crypto assets, right? Because a few years ago, that would have been unimaginable, almost. I think I've made the argument that your average risk manager or portfolio manager at a company probably would have been viewed as crazy two years ago if they even dared bring up Bitcoin in a meeting. And now it's probably flipped. You have to have some knowledge of it, or you're the guy who's behind the time. So are you seeing that across the board with these the big wall of money endowments pensions these people that you're talking to when we talk about trillions coming into the space is that really a part of the conversation uh,
1: uh it, it has been yes yeah. so i you know i went down the rabbit hole on on bitcoin specifically last december you know like it's, it's like any of us right you're you're a bystander until it you know the it it starts to saturate the airwaves enough that you're like okay you know i'm going to learn about this and First thing you do is you go on on on, on, on Twitter, and you quickly realize that um, there's a lot of very polarizing opinions, and they're not always that well backed or that 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 uh, objective, if you will. And I think institutions had probably that same issue. I, again, you were lucky, we're talking about six nine months ago, um, so th- so you know it's it's a hard thing to understand to onboard yourself with there's a steep learning curve. And so you have to put in the time to understand it. Um, and I think, um, especially when I wrote this paper back in, in February about Bitcoin being, you know, as an aspiring store of value and kind of digital gold and what it would mean in, 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 in a 60 40, 40 portfolio in today's world, where that 40 side uh, of the 60, 40 is a little impaired through negative real rates and et cetera. And, and, you so know, um, uh, yes. And so that was kind of my conclusion that, you know, I don't really want to touch the 60 side because the 60, the equity side is a pretty proven, store of value with its compounding you know math be behind it even during inflationary times not hyperinflation but regular inflationary times but the 40 side you know normally you get paid to to, to to diversify against the 60, right? You buy bonds, you get income and diversification. These days you you have to pay to get the diversification because you're paying through negative real rates. You're still getting the negative correlation, but you have to pay for it. Um, and so that was my conclusion. And I think that that generally resonated uh, with institutions. So we went through a few months where we sat down with A lot of cios mostly of corporate pension plans but also some treasurers um and and i think for them it was really like how do i learn about this space maybe they had a board member knocking on that door saying what's this bitcoin stuff about or maybe it went in the other direction um and there was there weren't a lot of places to go you know since that time most financial institutions the large ones have weighed in on the matter, but we were kind of one of the the first ones, and so for them it was really just kicking the tires. What is this all about? How should I look at this? What do I need to know? Uh, whether they were ready to pull the trigger or not, you know, I I wasn't uh, I wasn't privy to, but but there certainly was a lot of interest, and and of course remember this was also the time when Bitcoin was just roaring ahead to its sixty five thousand uh, dollar peak so far, so there was that kind of that momentum that I think also forces. People people to say, God, what what am I missing here, right?
0: Do you think that uh, institutions are generally cognizant of the problems with money printing? I have conversations all of the time with uh, Wall Street guys even on these and they sort of view it as a benefit. You talked about the 60% inequities, obviously that benefits from inf- inflation to some degree, right? You buy hard assets, uh, they go up in value because of inflation. Or do you think that uh, they believe that you can still hold cash in the treasury or hold bonds and it'll be fine? Or do they, do you think they have a long term vision that we really need to start investing in some assets that might be a hedge against this?
1: I I think the conversation starts with, um, you know, historically when you would own gold as an investor. Uh, so you know, so I don't view gold as something you own all the time because most of the time it's just sitting there on the far right-hand side of the risk-reward spectrum uh it's it's collecting collecting dust and it has an annualized volatility of like 25 and and it's essentially earning the inflation rate that's historically been gold's role Uh, but there are times regimes where gold does extremely well and those are times when monetary inflation is you know is is very high so 1970s, 1940s, um, even around even around around the financial crisis and obviously in 2020, uh, you know, excess money, um, money supply growth minus GDP growth to something like 35%. I mean, the highest we've ever seen. Okay. So that would normally be a time where you want that store of value to protect yourself from inflation and from from negative real rates we all know that gold trades in lockstep with the 10-year tips real yield and so it is it is a perfect hedge against negative real rates from that sense but then essentially Bitcoin enters the scene uh, and it has the potential of being you know a digital form of gold but with more convexity because it has that whole network dimension and it has even scarcer supply than gold, right? Gold supply is scarce, but it's scarce at the same rate of change uh, in terms of the amount of supply, uh, in, in terms of its stock to flow. You know, the, the, the same amount of gold is mined more or less every year. And of course, we know the story that, that for, for Bitcoin, that is not, not true, that, that is, is not the case. Um, so I think, generally speaking, when I talk to uh, investors, that's how I think about it, and I think that's generally kind of what they take away from it: is that uh, a period of monetary inflation, you need a hedge. Um, stocks are are one of are one of them, and and again in this in the sixty forty mindset, which I think most of us live in, whether you're institution or or individual investor, um, it really is that forty side where you know, certainly on the short term side, if I'm going to lose, you know, two, three, four, five percent of my money in terms of purchasing power, uh, very similar to what happened during the 1940s during World War II, and the Fed was kind of, you know, tasked with monetizing the increase in debt, and it capped interest rates at two and a half percent. I liken it to a kind of analogous to that period. And of course, gold wasn't free to trade back in the 40s. That happened in the 70s. But once gold uh came of age and it was free uh to become an asset class you know it was kind of money before now it became an asset class uh it it did its thing in the 1970s and I view Bitcoin as kind of doing that same thing that coming of age Um, and so in the conversation we've had uh generally that's kind of where I go and I think that that view I think is generally um shared like I think that resonates with with it with people with institutions as to okay because you know it's easy to say wow this is really cool uh but then you're operating or managing you know an endowment or a pension then you have to figure out like where does it go you know how much do i own like does it go in the 60 on the 40 is it one percent is it five percent and and so there are a lot of open questions and obviously the volatility which um, I do think will come down over time sure. as will its return. You know, it's the, the sharp ratio will probably stay the same, uh, but both the, the numerator and denominator will come down. But obviously uh, being an institution, especially a treasurer, uh, where you are just meant to do no harm, keep that cash safe, buying something with a vol of 100 um, is, is you know, is not an easy task, right?
0: That's true. So you speak to them in a language they understand, basically, right. and the language that everybody understands is gold. But uh, gold hasn't fared particularly well in this period, right? While we've seen Bitcoin obviously from the March 20 lows pulled 17X to 65,000, as you talked about, gold remained somewhat stable, which is fine. But do you now uh, view Bitcoin as a better version of gold? Do you think that there's a general sentiment that gold has, no pun intended, lost its luster and that Bitcoin has now become superior? Because really it seems like there's a, pretty sizable exodus from the metals market
1: yeah i i think as bitcoin um comes to its in into its own being um as an aspiring asset class and one with you know a a very very unique maybe the most unique ever uh supply demand dynamic right i mean it has that scarcity uh and it has the network i mean i don't know of any other asset that combines those two things right gold does not have it it doesn't have the network effect it has scarcity but like i said you know its stock to flow is pretty stable at around 50 i think uh whereas bitcoins will just go up over time um and so I do think that gold, that Bitcoin has uh, taken market share and mine share from traditional precious metals. Um, and I think as Bitcoin matures over the years, it will become kind of like a Paris trade, you know, like, like before Bitcoin, if we were in the precious metals, um, um, you know, uh, industry, you know it, um, um, uh, theme as a market, we could go gold versus silver gold versus gold miners right they're, they're like ratios and you one gets oversold to the other I think we'll we'll you know in five years it'll be Bitcoin versus gold it'll be Bitcoin versus ethereum like everything will trade as a pair and um if one goes too far uh then people will start gravitating and you know uh, one of the things we're not seeing a lot uh, on right now on neither Bitcoin nor gold is actual valuation work, right? Everyone kind of anchors to price and and gold's valuation would be trading off of the the real tips yield, for instance. But but gold trades off of the 10-year real yield instead of the five-year real yield. And I could have easily have seen it pick the five year, and and this may sound like inside baseball, but the five year real yield is much more leveraged towards uh, Fed policy, because when the Fed does QE, it's buying in the belly of the curve. And when the Fed sets forward guidance, you know, it goes out maybe three, four, five years, but not beyond that. So the five year tends to be more sensitive to Fed policy. And so if the, if gold was trading on the five year real yield, it would be at about 21, 2200, which is not that much higher than where it is, but it's higher. And so gold could have easily been justified to trade at 2200 right now, but it's not. And I think it's because it's just losing mind share and maybe uh, younger generations of of investors who don't have any gold. uh, Maybe they say, well, I've got this gold and I've got this new digital gold. Why don't I just go there? Uh, Whereas maybe an older generation who's always been in gold, well, that, that's like their benchmark, and they'll go there here.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't think you're ever convincing the younger generation to buy a bar of gold and secure it. I just don't think it's going to happen. And I think uh, the same sort of relationship you just described is the same relationship that older generations tend to have with technology, right? Mm-hmm. So a younger generation is inherently going to adopt something that makes sense to them because they're uh, more technologically forward generations, that makes perfect sense. So something that you were talking about before we talked about the 1940s and 1970s periods of monetary inflation where stores of value, like gold have succeeded or thrived. This, I I hate to use the words this time, it's different, but it feels like the expansion of monetary policy now is different that you know, we're seeing a 30 40% increase in dollars printed of all time in one year. Um, So do you think, you talked about gold being a trade for certain times, but do you think that that now is the environment moving forward and that we will continue to see this increased uh, monetary policy, inflation, money printing, and that maybe these assets become a permanent part of your portfolio rather than something that you, I hate to use the word transitory, but something that you move in and out of uh, depending on the environment
1: um I, I think the potential is definitely there for that and and these regimes that i mentioned of monetary inflation they do tend to last a while they'll they can last you know 10 plus years um and 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 by monetary inflation i just mean uh that money supply is growing faster than its historical trend right we have m2 going back 100 plus years and it grows at a certain kind of trend line and then you have these periods like the the 30s 40s 70s late 60s 70s um uh, around the 08 financial crisis where it just kind of you know goes much much faster than that um and so that regime can persist for a while so you so I'm so by regime I don't mean you own it for a year and then you you sell it uh right. but when I look at the efficient frontier you know uh, risk on the horizontal return on the vertical and I go back seven years and I look at where cash is it's bottom left stocks upper right bonds kind of towards the third 60 40s right on that curve but commodities are down and to the right right so you're getting inflation but you're paying like the, the volatility of EM equities for that, for only getting, you know, three, four, 5%. Uh, but then you have periods, you know, 10 plus years where uh, they work extremely well. And and I do think the 1940s is very analogous. Um, and I also think uh, what what's happening in Japan is very analogous, even though Japan is completely different in many, many, many ways. But, you know, I look at the bond market And i look at what the bank of japan has done to the bond market there Uh, the boj owns half of the outstanding debt stock in japan and it buys um, half of the new supply and the bank of japan has completely tamed the bond market there into submission Uh, the annualized volatility of long-term jgbs is three Uh, that same volatility for long-term treasuries is 11. And there are days where the JGB market doesn't even trade. Uh, it's just become a thing wow. that the Bank of Japan owns and controls. And now the Fed isn't anywhere close to that. The Fed only owns 26% of the outstanding debt stock, only. which is only, um, and it's buying about a third of the new supply. Um, and you know the Fed can talk about tapering all at once, but my personal sense is that in the coming years five plus years from now uh the fed's going to look a lot more like the boj and maybe it will too will have tamed the bond market into submission but the question that you know we can say okay fine uh the question is what is that going to do right um will that create hyperinflation or will that cause the dollar to crash and lose its reserve status and that yeah you know, as you know is is a common kind of refrain from um the hardcore bitcoin community um and I I don't really share that view i mean uh I obviously again again japan is totally different in many ways from the u.s but demographically the u.s is about 10 years behind japan when you look at the age dependency curve uh or the labor force growth rates uh, we're tracking japan with a lag of 10 years and to me it is not far-fetched just to, just to, to think that maybe in 10 years our our kind uh, of our interest rate system will look like 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 japan's Where the fed will be the controlling owner uh it will have been you know there won't be a lot of volatility left the bond market the bond vigilantes will be a thing of of the past um but in japan there doesn't seem to have been a price to be paid for it. they don't have inflation the currency is stable and i think this speaks to one of the things that i think is uh, often overlooked when people talk about the reserve status of the dollar and what's going to happen we're going to print our way into oblivion um and and that is that the whole world has the same problem right europe japan china the us they all have the same problem you know our our collective debt to gdp so including corporate financial individual and government we're running at about 300 percent of gdp well so is europe so is china and Japan takes the prize, they're at over 400% of GDP. But their rates are zero, their inflation is zero, their currency is stable. Uh, and so, you know, I don't wanna conclude that, that this money printing era or this monetary inflation era um, is so um, self-destructive that the whole thing is going to end in a disaster. And even during the 1940s, right, a different era, uh, we had a baby boom. It was a world, world war. Uh, all that stuff. So completely different environment. But you know, the government tripled its debt when it entered World War II in 1942. The Fed, which was not independent yet, was tasked with monetizing that debt. The Fed uh, increased its balance sheet by 10x. 10x okay we've only done 2x so far you know from uh, from last year to to now um it capped long rates at two and a half it capped short rates at three eighths it kept the policy rate the, the back then the discount rate at about one one and a half percent even though inflation was running at six through that period of the 1940s and when it ended when the fed got its independence in 1951 um, it's not like everything blew up you know bond yields were stable inflation was stable for a decade and a half until the late 60s right with, with the guns sure. and butter. Um, so I, I'm I don't want to over conclude that this is so unsustainable that we need to let you know go um barter stuff and you know sell all of our our financial assets so
0: i I certainly wasn't implying i also don't believe that there believe that there's an impending explosion necessarily it was just more a statement of once the train is going it's hard to stop and so i don't think money printing necessarily itself will stop um and with that in mind the argument that you just made that maybe it'll be fine. Probably, actually, I should say it'll be fine. And eventually it will come under under control. Has Bitcoin benefited from only existing in a period like that? Obviously, Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto even said that it was, you know, a a reaction to the banks and and policy in 2008 and 2009 that sparked the creation of Bitcoin. And we've never really been in an environment with Bitcoin where there wasn't, uh, you know, inflationary monetary policy. So is that in some way an indictment or something that we should be can you know that we should be wary of or aware of moving forward that if things calm down maybe bitcoin won't be the trade at that point or the best investment
1: um i I, you know i i think um you know bitcoin is only one piece of the, the puzzle right i mean bitcoin is just the the incentive token to build the blockchain right I mean that is why people are verifying transactions and that's how the network grows and similar to other networks and you think about you know Apple or Google you know a number of years ago um, you grow that network and and it gets to a point where it becomes impenetrable it's so big uh, you can't hack it you can't even really regulate it maybe you can try to but uh, you can't really shut it down anymore and so i think bitcoin will will in all likelihood benefit from you know that first mover advantage and now it's over 10 years old and you know there's 38 million addresses with a non-zero balance it's growing exponentially um and so it it, it goes through these boom bust periods right because it's it's you know it has price inelasticity right because we know the supply it's not like there can be a supply response. If demand goes up, because it's completely set in stone, right? So it, so the price movements is really all about demand. Demand goes up, it moves very, very quickly, and if it goes up, or if down, demand even
0: remains static, in theory, price yes. goes up. Right. It, it,
1: exactly. So, so you know the the. the I mean not not to um say that the stock-to-flow model is is the best way of looking at this but you see the stock-to-flow model it has these boom-bust cycles right and they're around the halvings and i understand why that is um uh, and so where where we land in the next you know year or two um who knows but i think bitcoin will have its moments like it's had since the the COVID lockdown um and then it will just kind of sit around and do nothing for a while and then it will have its moment again. And I think during the period where it sits around, uh, then people will kind of go back to maybe gold. They like, say, oh, wow, gold's really been left for dead here. Maybe I, you know, like th- there'll be that kind of relative yeah. value play. Um, so so it has its moments where these catalysts come up and say, holy cow, you know, the, the, it's now. And then there'll be other times where it kind of sits around. And in a way, since April has been kind of sitting around, Oh
0: sure. uh, Do you love sports collectibles or fantasy sports as much as I do? SoRare is blending this together to create an entirely new gaming experience powered by its community. SoRare cards are officially licensed NFTs from over 160 clubs, including Real Madrid, Paris Saint-Germain, and Liverpool, and all built on Ethereum. You truly own your collectibles. They are productive gaming assets that will generate rewards if you're a good fantasy player like me. Join SoRare and connect with your favorite teams, live the game with passion and earn weekly prizes. You can do all of this at the wolf of all dot link slash so rare. Yeah. And yeah. that that still implies though, history, you know, with if, if you uh, zoom out far enough that it'll be up and to the right. And so, you know, yeah. that does that does put much higher prices in play. It just uh, might yeah. require patience and it might not be the single highest appreciating asset. Always,
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and and it's interesting because, uh, so I, I, you know, as I did my my dive down the rabbit hole uh, last late last year, uh, you know, I, I I I looked up the Plan B stuff and I tried to like reverse engineer the stock to flow model, which I think I I, I did, um, but I was left unsatisfied that you know this can't just be a supply story because. Um, something that has no worth doesn't matter how scarce it is, right? right and so then I course. started looking at at the Metcalf law stuff, the S curves, uh, you know, plenty of examples of those throughout time, of course. And I built out a demand model, uh, and I actually modeled it after uh, mobile phone adoption back a few decades ago. And when I posted on Twitter, people were criticizing me for how can you possibly compare Bitcoin to mobile phones? It's like, well, that's not the point. It's it's the network curve, right? That exponential growth curve if that's the point because they all those curves are the same essentially um and it's interesting that the demand model and the supply model um you know have obviously done a good job explaining price so far and part of that is just because you know you curve fit it for that period so it's always going to look good but they they kind of deviate from each other going forward where the demand model is is much more conservative uh still with very crazy prices, but 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 less crazy than, than the stock to flow model. Uh, and 2024 is about the last time that those two models intersect, and then they kind of diverge from each other.
0: Uh, you've made the point a few times, it's just worth highlighting, it really is such a unique asset. And that's why people don't, I think, understand it, people can understand the supply and demand very easily. And people can look at technology, like you said, Google's, the Facebook's, the Apple's, the cell phone, and understand Metcalf's law and network effects, but they have a very hard time marrying the two of those.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, um, and, and it requires, you know, it's a highly risky proposition in the early days because uh, a small network, you know, can just kind of die off, but a larger network, it builds, it builds on itself. But it it requires some sort of social agreement, if you will. It's like you know, money only is money because everyone agrees that it's money. And uh, HTTP/IP in the early internet days, you know, as it gets the scale, then things are built on it. Same with Ethereum right now, where things are being built on top of it. But you need to get to that point and until you get to that point like nobody has any idea whether it's going to to work or not and you know i, I did a i did a little study um that I, I were posting on on twitter uh probably in the next couple of days where i compare um, bitcoin to uh the early days for apple uh, I'm, I'm not a stock picker so i don't know apple you know as a security person but you know apple in 90 from 1996 on um its price far outstripped its sales or its market value grew much faster than its revenues did. And that's because as the revenue becomes more scalable, that's my way of describing it as a network. Um, it's not that price just moves in line with that, but it moves exponentially, which is Metcalfe's law, right? It's the exponential. So so the the, the sales went up, price went up or market value went up even more its price to sales went up uh, and so it is not a linear thing and I think that's what's happening to Bitcoin is that obviously its network is growing but its value is growing even more because the bigger that network becomes the more powerful and scalable uh, well maybe not scalable in in for for Bitcoin because it's not because it's decentralized but you know what I mean the more immutable that network becomes
0: I mean in the last 30 years how many times have we seen well either old school investors or people who are used to doing valuations in a certain way laugh at tech mm-hmm. how is this company worth x amount when they're losing x amount every single year right companies that aren't making money have these tremendous values based on that network effect
1: yeah yeah and and so you know one one simple exercise that i did was um i created uh like a PE ratio for for, uh, for bitcoin price per millions of addresses with a non-zero balance. So it's like a price to network ratio. And if I index that price to network ratio back to Bitcoin's price in 2010, um, so Bitcoin said 40, uh, when I did this, it was 47,000. Bitcoin's price would be only 66 if you priced it in valuation terms. Um, So in other words, most of its price increase was justified by the increase in its network sure. um, and and so i see very little work on valuation i think it's important to do it because people anchor to price is like fifty thousand. it was like two cents you know like but the network has grown you know exponentially so on a price to network basis it's not nearly as expensive as it is in price terms and you know right. price is kind of meaningless it's it's what you're what are you paying for something you know mm-hmm. It's like Dow 30,000, who cares? Like, what's the price to earnings ratio? You know, that, that's yeah. what matters.
0: I, I talk about price being different than value all the time. And you made such an important point because that exact argument is a huge argument against Bitcoin and similar assets. I don't know what the value, what's the fundamental value of it? It has no fundamental value. It's just price. But there are ways to give a valuation. They're just not the classic ways that Wall Street or, or you know, managers are used to looking at exactly yeah that makes so much sense you said something interesting you said listen money is just a social agreement between people we all agree that it has value you can say that it's backed by government or military everybody has their sort of idea one of the largest criticisms against bitcoin is it has no intrinsic value but to that end what does have intrinsic value isn't everything to some degree a social construct or a social agreement
1: uh, yeah, in a way, even language, like, what if we couldn't agree on what right. the right words are in the English language, we wouldn't get anything done. So yes, I mean, uh, social agreement is, is is a big part of it. And again, think back to the early internet, you know, the, 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 the actual protocols, um, you know, with Bitcoin, you can actually own the protocol, you know, in, in the internet days, you'd have to buy a company that built something on the protocol, you know, like, a, whatever it's Google or Amazon or Facebook. Uh, and so yeah it's it's part of it is is a social agreement on um on what this network is and what can be done off of it and you know it's still unclear exactly where this will go whether DeFi will replace you know or disintermediate Intermediate banks or whether they will just live side by side and just like the post office lives next to the email Um, and and so I don't think it's an either or thing uh, which again is another kind of Maxi way of of looking at it, Uh, but I think you know there are a lot of people in the world who um, live in a in a regime where they don't know if their money is going to get inflated away or confiscated um, um, or people that are unbanked, you know, by my count, when I look at the World Bank data. There's about one and a half billion people over the age of 15 who do not have financial services available to them. And so, you know, we're living in a world where, you know, we operate in dollars, we're living in the the US. um, And so we kind of have the luxury of having a stable currency. I mean, a dollar is very stable. You know, over the past 50 years, in real terms, it's lost half a percent per year on a compounded basis, not a big deal. Uh, but not everyone is so fortunate, right? So we, we have the reserve currency. It's backed, like you said, by, by the largest economy uh, and military power in the world. But there are a lot of people who don't have that luxury. And I think uh, the, the, the blockchain and Bitcoin and the whole crypto uh, sphere... Uh, certainly has a use case for them as well as for for all of us um especially you know when you think about all the applications that can be built off of on on top of this blockchain but but in the early days it, it's super risky because you haven't built that consensus yet right you haven't agreed on the language yet or or what the value is of of money and how fungible it is and how exchangeable it is but the further we go Uh, And the longer it survives all these big ups and downs, I think the more it will become uh, obvious that this is a new social norm um, that has a lot of computing power and a lot of stuff that can be built on.
0: So you're obviously a fan of the 6040 model. We've clarified that. I want to talk a bit about uh, individual investment strategy. So I had Mark Yusko on the podcast uh, from Morgan Creek, and he said that, I don't know if it was a study or somebody told him, but that the best performing accounts at Fidelity were the ones where people were deceased and the accounts had just basically never been closed or managed, (laughs) lending to the idea that passive investment is obviously the best strategy and that if you actively invest, you're probably not going to beat a dead person. Um, Is that true? And is that a core value of the way that an individual should approach investment?
1: Um, Just to clarify, when I think about passive investment, I'm not... I want to make sure you're, we're talking about the same thing, but sure. there's active versus passive in terms of, do I buy an ETF or an actively managed fund? Sure. Uh, and I, I don't think that's what you're talking about. I think what you're right. talking about is- do Dollar I try cost to tra-
0: averaging and not uh, yeah, trading it, exactly. in a way, just um, a, a very yeah. fixed strategy over a, a long yeah. period of time. So, right? So, not, so,
1: yeah. So in my in my view, and I've been doing this you know uh, three decades, is that is absolutely the case. Um, so dollar cost averaging, uh, don't try to outsmart the markets by, you know, trying to time these these market cycles, so, you know, uh, I used to do that, like my like, I, I my ego couldn't resist to try to be the contrarian that outsmarts all, all the, you know, the the, um, the the other people. And I think it's, it's a fool's errand. I think, uh, you know, whenever you try to outsmart the market by getting out, it seems so easy, like, what, what do I have to lose, I just get out, and then i can just kind of take take a look and i can always get back in but unless you time it correctly when you're out of the market you're not compounding those returns right so this is all about the compounding magic of how you get to a 10 11% return over the long term even though you have an annualized volatility of 15 which is generally the vol for equities for a 60 40 it's 9 um, and you you know it that time out of the market can be very costly. And if you're wrong, you know, and and you missed the bottom, and all of a sudden, the markets back at a new high, I mean, look at how quickly that happened last year. Ah. Um, then it's like, well, I'll wait for the I'll wait for the pullback. And next thing you know, you've been out of the market for five years, it's 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 five times where it was before and you've lost that extremely valuable compounding and so my my take is and you know when i talk to you know my, my kids my daughter's 24 she's she has her four 3b account she's a nurse uh, i said just put as much as you can away don't touch it uh, you have 40 years till retirement you know you're going to do well over that period of time so i totally agree that the less you you know, have the right plan that makes sense where you are optimizing return per unit of risk, right. Uh, and obviously, the younger you are, the more risk you can take, which is, means that your 6040 is going to be more like a 9010 or, or something like that. Um, and th- so set up that plan, and just execute on it. Don't try to second guess it. I mean, it's it's behavioral finance, right? The market only goes up 60% of the time which means that 40% of the time it's going against us. And that 40% of the time we're, we're gonna wanna get out and we have to resist and overcome that urge, that, that fl- fight or flight urge to get out and then to rebalance, of course, right? In February of last year, before the big 35% decline, if we had a 60-40 portfolio, literally a month later, it was a 50-50 because stocks went down and bonds went up. Well, you need to rebalance back to 60, 40, so that when the recovery happens, the recovery is happening on the sixty, not on the fifty, right? And so, this really those three rules: you know, have a plan, stick with the plan, and rebalance either a certain time of year or when there's been a lot of a big move. Like after a big move, it's good to rebalance. And if you can do that and stick with it, um, I think that the market, the market math shows that over time that's been a good that's been a good strategy and especially dollar cost averaging uh whether it's for 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 stocks or for bitcoin uh you're never going to buy the low but you're never going to buy the high and and there's something to be said for that
0: yeah yeah you talked about the potential of having a 90 10 when you're younger um you know which obviously lends to rebalancing and becoming more uh conservative with time what is and I guess it depends on your age, but what is Bitcoin's role in that portfolio? I know obviously that you've said it you, it fits into that 40 and not into the 60, obviously, cause equities do so well, but I guess, you know, do you have a lot to lose if you're 20 and 90% of your portfolio is yeah. in, you know, not necessarily crypto, but.
1: Um, I think one of the things that I learned um, kind of doing some stress testing on Bitcoin's very short 10 year history is that Um, a little goes a long way, right? So if you're, um, if the 40 side of your portfolio, or or let's say you're a corporate treasurer and you tend to be more conservatively invested, your benchmark's gonna be shorter bonds than a a 40, a a general 40 would be. Um, And you're just trying to solve for not losing purchasing power in a world of negative real rates. Uh, you don't need to own a lot, assuming that past performance, you know, continues, which of course it, it won't, it, it'll be more <laughs> truncated, I think. But you know, even like just like one or 2% would, would have gotten you there in terms of flipping that negative purchasing power to a positive one. But you know, as we talked about, it comes at a at a cost in terms of volatility, Bitcoin is not a short term asset. So that's why for like a treasurer, it's really hard because you have a short term portfolio that you're hedging for lack of a better word with a very long-term asset and and then you run the risk of a of a duration mismatch so right if you're a treasurer and you need that money to make an acquisition or buy back shares and and it's all and it's it's in a 50% drawdown that's that's not going to be a good thing right so you right. need to have a long enough horizon that you can kind of let let that market math do its thing so my sense is and again it's going to be different for everyone uh everyone's situation is different um but if you're solving for a loss of purchasing power uh and normally you would buy gold and now you want to buy digital gold um you know that that that's one specific solution but even there the answer depends on what else you have in your portfolio if you own a bunch of real estate um then that's a real asset as well. And and in this environment, if you bought it with a 30 year fixed rate mortgage, you're even better off because you're locking in free land, you're you're (laughs) locking in that negative rate on the other side of the of the ledger, right. And so it's always um, subject to how your whole portfolio looks. Um, But you know, uh, but it's it's certainly um, it certainly has has its place um uh but it's you know like i said it's highly priced inelastic and and it, it is subject to these boom bust kind of you know um uh, occurrences and um but you know maybe dollar cost averaging is 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 the way yeah. to go
0: i mean if you you know if you were five percent bitcoin and that was your conservative view as to what was appropriate and went up 20 times for you it becomes a much larger part of your portfolio the problem for most i think adamant believers is that they're not going to rebalance that you're talking about the importance of rebalancing but they're not going to rebalance that
1: no no and and i think for for the 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 real the real hardcore and and i've i've met some of them i, I go to burning man and there's a lot of crypto stuff uh, at burning <laughs> man it's like you know i don't trust my money in fiat so i'm putting everything in bitcoin and it's uh, i wouldn't call it a religious belief but it's not it's not the traditional asset allocation approach it's just that uh they they just they, they think that fiat is more risky than Bitcoin. And I don't subscribe to that. I think if right. we weren't the reserve, if we were living in Venezuela, maybe. Sure. But not, yeah. not, not in the US. Um, but, but there, there is that, that thinking out there.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a bet on conviction 100%. <laughs> it's just, yeah, like you yeah. said, it's in a belief system. I wouldn't call it a religion either, but I guess it's fair to say that it's close. So what advice would you give to a college student that's trying to start a you know very basic portfolio and plan, starting to think about long-term gains and retirement. It's funny, Gary Gensler just put out a video for college kids actually saying just save eight percent, you know save five dollars a week and you'll make eight percent, which I have no idea where you're making eight percent if you're just putting in a bank account, which was the implication, but that's a different right. story. And you'll have one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars when you retire. Of course, that $135,000 might just buy you a loaf of bread depending on how things go. But if yeah. you were talking to a college student at this point, you, you know, you have $50 you can put away a week. Yep. How should you approach that?
1: Um, uh, no, it's it's a great question and and I have this conversation I had it with 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 my 24-year-old daughter when she graduated and the message is very simple. Start as early as you can because the compounding math requires time. Right don't start when you're 50 because you're you're never going to be able to I mean you, you should if you haven't I mean it's better. Right. better than nothing. But the compounding math is just not going to work as well as when you start at 20 or 25 and you know put away as much as you can get that match from your employer, if you have one um, and um, and it's just you know it's delayed consumption right you're you're foregoing consumption now if you have the luxury of doing it not everyone does of course they're living you know paycheck to Paycheck, paycheck. paycheck but if you can do it and you maximize that 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 contribution from your employer and you can start as soon as you get your first paycheck and you can invest it tax deferred and you do that for 40 years um time and and market history is, is on your side, and uh, you know at fidelity we have target date funds where where we kind of do the allocation for you, but you can do it yourself. You know you start you look at you look at the time frame again. You look at that efficient frontier, um, and the price to be paid for the higher return is volatility. But if you don't need to buy a house in two years uh, and you have a long long window of time. You don't really have to worry too much about about volatility. I mean, obviously, if you need a down payment on your house in five years, uh, you need to put that money in a in a different kind of portfolio. Uh, but if you're young and you have a job and you have an employer who matches you know, you can, who matches contributions, um, then um, you know the earlier you start, the more the more thankful you will be at the other side that that you did.
0: So early, often, and then the yeah. the, the hardest caveat being you can't take it out every time you want to go on a trip.
1: No. That was no, my problem. And, my problem no, and, was and, I was
0: very I was a very good investor until I wanted to go somewhere and I cash out a mutual fund that was supposed to be for my retirement to pay for the trip.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And and a nice thing about 401ks is that you you don't really see the money leave, right? It it kind of just goes off and I, it's much easier to save that way than to make that conscious decision, oh my god, $300. I could I could do this with that. Like you don't yeah. You don't even think about it that way so it's it's good
0: yeah it's money that never entered your account that it's, it's much, much easier to see uh, see go away and build. Um, before we're done uh, what plans does fidelity have in the future for expanding crypto services, uh, as you said, obviously I mean you guys are mining you're really down in the trenches on this, so I have to imagine that, assuming the asset class continues to mature that you have bigger plans.
1: Yeah, so you know we have a unit called Fidelity Digital Assets or FDAS, um, and uh, it's growing. You know very very quickly. Uh, we are obviously you know building out uh, the infrastructure. We already have services for accredited you know institutions or accredited uh, investors um in terms of you know storing uh bitcoin even buying it and um you know i am not sure exactly what they're doing at this moment i work for the for the asset management side so it's a different arm but uh but you know they're they're fast growing and working hard at obviously building out the ability to serve uh, an ever-growing customer base both on the institution side as well as on the individual side and um um, and so you know I, I think we you know we committed early to being a big part of this, and uh, uh, from everything that I'm seeing is we will continue to do exactly that.
0: It's admirable, and we appreciate it. <laughs> you guys are absolutely leading the charge, and I think that um we talked about institutional adoption in 2016 to 17, but that was kind of a joke and now it might really be happening and, and uh, we definitely appreciate your efforts. Uh, where can everybody follow you after this and keep up with what you're doing?
1: Um, on Twitter, I'm at, uh, at TimurFidelity and on, on LinkedIn, um, you can just you know, plug in my name and, and you'll see it. But for Timmer, it's at Timur Fidelity, So um...
0: Perfect. Well, thank really? you so much for taking the time. Much appreciated, and a lot of valuable insight for our listeners. I'm sure they're going to love. It.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Scott, for uh, for for doing this. Appreciate it. <laughs>